and welcome to the Arrow Video Podcast with Sam and Dan. My name's Dan Martin, special effects artist, podcaster and birthday boy, and I'm joined, as ever, by my lovely co-host... Sam Ashurst, and I'm a writer, I'm a director, and I'm not only excited to discuss my pick for this fortnight, To Live and Die in L.A., but in extra features, I've got an interview with Prano Bailey Bond about Censor, uh, which provides brand new evidence that Dan is a piss wizard. Um, <laughs> so a lovely birthday present for you there, Dan. All will be revealed later on. But yeah, before we do that, why don't you tell the precious Arrowheads the plot of To Live and Die in L.A.? OK, so To Live and Die in L.A. follows a um, a government agent who in a revenge fueled fury drifts further and further away from the legality of his intended job while chasing an artist slash counterfeiter with his new partner into the seedy undi- underbelly 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 <laughs> i mean there <laughs> are again. there are some undies oh. and there are some bellies in this movie there so there are many undies and many bellies <laughs> in this film um yeah that that does it yeah that definitely lot, does it a fair we're amount g- of blood in it we're going to be real super careful with this one because um again i don't know what your experience with this movie is dan how many times you've seen it up until this point but i do think it's one of the underseen friedkin films obviously uh, you know the cruising's also on on the arrow label i think we'll get to that at some point but um yeah. yeah let's be careful with spoilers here what is your experience with this film when did you first see it i don't know when i first saw it uh when i sat down to watch it this time i for the first like 10 seconds i thought i hadn't seen it before and then it was one of those movies where as i watched it i was increasingly aware that i had had seen it before great and just to sort of jump to jump to the fact i'm afraid i don't like it very much i had a feeling this would be one of your i don't like this very much movies because the morality is pretty kind of ambiguous that is something that you really do hate especially in well, american it's... movies for some reason i think you're, you're yeah. more okay with it in kind of japanese and korean cinema but for some reason with the american well, and films... italian and yeah. english and... yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But I don't thing is I don't actually think it's a problem with the morality. I don't need to like characters as people. Mm. And actually there was you know, again I'm sort of jumping the gun slightly, but the Freakin's commentary on this really I think cast a lot of light into what he was trying to do with it, which didn't always come across for me. It cast a lot of light into where I think the disconnect came for me with the film. So obviously, you know, being relatively oblique about all this, because as you said, we don't want to spoil it. We really, really have to be with this. An underseen film, yeah. yeah. All of the things that should make me like it don't quite land for me. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's about the morality. Like, you know, I, I watch a lot of films about a lot of horrible fucking people, and I love them. And while there are some things that I find uncomfortable being depicted on screen, and there are ways in which some things can be like handled cheaply or whatever i don't think this falls into any of those pits like no, that's not the problem i have with this movie ultimately i find it a little bit dull there's so one of the things and and this is from the commentary and again i'll be super oblique but like looking back on it i think it suffers from a little bit of the john carter of mars syndrome which is that it did a lot of things first it did a lot of things that have now become genre staples first and so to go back and look at it, they've all been beaten because it's so very rare that the first version of a thing 
is the best is never bettered so they had some great ideas and they put them out there but whenever i watched this the first time I, it definitely wasn't when it first came out and like again stories about you know it's a freaking crime movie it's it's got a chase in it the chase is technically much more impressive than it is for me on screen like there's a couple of things in it that are nice but like it didn't it didn't grab me i wasn't excited by it there's so much in what you've said that i kind of want to respond to first of all in terms of the themes and what it was trying to address the commentary was just kind of confirmation for me as opposed to oh yeah i see because i i did actually get that kind of stuff from it especially you know the stuff about fate in terms of the the visual storytelling there's one beat in the first kind of 10 minutes that's just beautiful creating a kind of unique circular narrative and obviously freaking is obsessed with fate and this for me is kind of one of the best explorations of that theme from him because it's all about how our flaws kind of create our fate in a really kind of wonderful way without getting into details and yeah absolutely it's hugely influential as you say i think we're allowed to say that it features the first appearance of the i'm getting too old for this shit trope um along with the three days before retirement trope And it's a movie that's a bit like punk in that it seems to have led a bunch of people to pick up their cameras as opposed to guitars to make their own version of it. There are obviously cop movies before this film, obviously, many of them, um, but they weren't the same after it. And I kind of appreciate it on that level, but that doesn't impact on my enjoyment of it because I did see this kind of early on-ish um like when i was a kid i was obsessed with crime movies much more than horror i only really got into horror after i saw evil dead 2 the evil dead 2 vhs was my kind of gateway into horror and i saw that in like i think it must be 92 so i was 14 when i saw evil dead 2 for the first time before that it was just scorsese and british crime movies and all sorts of stuff so For me, this is honestly one of the best examples for reasons we can't get into, unfortunately. So (laughs) there are big moments in the third act of this movie related to our main character's journey that that make this movie very special for me. Uh, It's a shame, man, but I I can... I I was prepared for this. Like, when I hit the credits, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, this is going to be the one that Dan doesn't like. But it it is for reasons that that surprise me, because... Of all the words that you can use to describe to live and die in L.A., like dull, I'm very surprised by dull. Like the music alone, surely. I I did not like the soundtrack at all. Oh, Jesus Christ. Right. I found found the soundtrack, like, it it felt cheap. It felt, yeah, like I didn't, like, you know, I'm not a a super au fait with with their work as as a musical act, so maybe you know if i was more connected to it, i know they were a bigger deal in america than they were in the uk but yeah like no there was just like i could tell that it was trying to be exciting so often all the way through and it was showing me all these things and they so rarely landed the 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 thing you alluded to earlier the the sort of the setup the theatric like the thematic setup in the first 10 minutes is is great that's really beautiful and the some of the cinematography is very very nice it's got a really uh interesting mix of that kind of like 80s gaudy aesthetic and then this quite restrained cinematic style which which juxtaposes quite hard against the like what you're actually seeing because the 80s is such a like a sort of a colorful and excessive decade 
So there's some there's certainly some interest to be taken in that. I, I when you said like the themes that like that he was trying to get across, those aren't that's not what I mean. What I mean, and feel free to cut this out if you feel like it it reveals too much. Mm-hmm. But Freakin talks about not knowing his characters. Freakin talks about on the commentary, Freakin talks about like you know, everyone being anathema, everyone being a mystery, everyone finding their own way through life and just letting them like figure that stuff out. So obviously he knows the end points. You know, he knows where the beats they're gonna hit throughout the narrative, but he's gonna let the actors play with it. He finds it in the edit. He talks a lot about not being not storyboarding, not being stuck to that kind of regime. And I felt that that genuinely made it feel very directionless for me. Oh, um, I, I I think it's the total opposite. I think it's kind of it's about the battle between fate and free will. So I really love the fact that it's, it's almost like he's playing God. He's kind of letting them do what they want within the scenes. I mean, not to a ridiculous degree. It's not, it doesn't feel like every scene's improvisational, but um, there is a looseness to it, which I think you're kind of alluding to. And there is some unusual dialogue and, and stuff like that. But the fact that they have that kind of freedom, but ultimately everyone ends up where they end up um let's kind of put it that way yeah i really loved that and i also loved that that william peterson is not a likable character in any way which which isn't extraordinary in these kinds of american movies but what is unusual is it seems to be deliberate <laughs> um he is honestly one of the most incompetent cops ever i don't think he does a single thing um <laughs> <laughs> that leads to anything good um he is a good driver though and and you did mention the car chase and and you're feeling unimpressed by it whereas for me yeah, I... I i think it's absolutely epic and it feels like a big influence on terminator 2 um not in the location at one point but in the way it kind of escalates no i absolutely love it's almost like a horror film it's the most but horror is... car chase I, th- I think i've ever seen so this is that's the thing like you say an influence on terminator 2 but it's not like those that that location wasn't used in loads of the old black and white hot rod yeah like like i just said not because of the location because of the way it escalates i'm not saying it's the location i'm saying it's the escalation i see what you mean but like there's a lot of stuff where he freaking is talking about stuff that is i don't know i feel there's an aunt He's obviously a very, very good director, so it feels very difficult to con- like to to complain about some of this stuff there. But then you get stuff like on the commentary where he's talking about this cool way he's figured out to get like really effective gunshots to the face on camera that's like fast and cheap and 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 way better than anything that you could do with like traditional special effects. And I'm listening to him describe it. And I'm like, no, it's terrible. What are you talking about? This is it. This is what it comes no, down to. No, no, no. That's this is that's just a detail. But right. what that remind what that reminded me of that moment of unearned confidence in that special effect, which is quantifiably bad, was going to see Friedkin talk in front of the remaster of French Connection, um, uh, at the screen in Islington, and he got up and he explained to everyone how they'd like, you know, this is how I always wanted it to be, and we've gone back in and we've digitally removed all of the grain, and then we've like exported it in three different black and white prints, and we've colorized one into red, one into green, one into blue, we've overlaid them, you know, it's going to look like this, and it's that, you know, it's got this feeling that I've got, and then he put it on, and everyone in the cinema was just fucking horrified. It's like, you've ruined this movie. 
Right. Yeah. It's awful. I mean, for again, for me, and yeah, I'm I'm not an expert or anything. Far from it, uh, especially compared to you. But yeah, I do. I didn't find a problem with the effects in this movie, and I actually found them pretty cool. But I watch I watch this kind of stuff very differently to you because you you are an expert, I, and and it sounds yeah, I... like. It sounds like it's you've very... got a bit of personal beef with Friedkin. No, not at all. Like, you know, I love Friedkin's films. Not all of them. Um, but I, th- I genuinely think he's an incredible director. Uh, and I don't... Like, the effects would not be enough to make me not enjoy this film. Mm-hmm. It's just... I feel it's indicative of a, an approach he was taking with this film that felt like it wasn't paying off. And I think that... Like he again in the in the in the audio commentary he talks about not wanting to see assemblies because editors can only cut even great editors can only cut to the script so he has no interest in seeing an assembly cut mm-hmm. uh, and he's supposed to get in there and rework it and completely retool it and again it, that that smacks of exactly the same thing as that French Connection story it smacks as exactly the same thing as saying oh well there's no point in doing prosthetics because they take too long and we'll just do this thing which looks terrible um, there are pyrotechnic bullet hits in the film that look great. Like you know, like one of my favorite moments in this film is someone getting shot in the testicles, <laughs> and it's incredible. <laughs> yeah. So you know, yeah, that that's not the reason. the The reason is I didn't engage with it. I found it boring. Fair enough, and and forgettable from the sounds of things. If um if it took you a moment to kind of key into, uh, yeah, the fact that you'd seen it, it before. It was that experience where I thought maybe I'd seen clips from it, or like a, it had been mentioned in a documentary, and you know. Well, I absolutely love this movie. I love the performances and I think it's quite telling that that I learned from the interviews on this disc actually and a little bit from the commentary. Um, I wasn't aware of just how many of the cast came from theatre and I think that's kind of partly because of this approach he wanted to take where everyone had a bit more freedom. But it does lead to a little bit more naturalism to a certain extent but there's just an interesting atmosphere in so many of these scenes that just makes it so unique it, it's almost like yeah it, it feels like an art movie it, it, to a certain extent uh, but obviously with uh, plenty of gore um yeah it, i just love his approach to the material it, it, we're at completely opposite ends of the scale on this one for me it's like a, a noir with all the lights turned on and instead of kind of scuttling away when the lights come on all the cockroaches kind of stay in the middle of the room and, and talk to each other. Show off their brightly yeah. coloured clothing. Yeah, I just, I God, I love it so much. So I, I am sad that, that um, you weren't into it. But let's let's kind of move on and, and, and talk a little bit about um, some of these extras. We've, we've already talked about the commentary. Unfortunately, it's not scene specific. So it's more like a kind of solo interview. But for me... There's just so much insanely good stuff here. It kind of becomes an essential listen. It goes into depth on all the the really important elements of the movie, including that astonishing casting. It's very honest, which is perhaps partly why it's rubbed down up the wrong way, (laughs) because Freakin' is a bit of a love him or hate him type character. But yeah, I just find everything about this film so fascinating. And it's really rewatchable as well. Not for Dan, he forgot he'd seen it. Um, but <laughs> for me, it's it's kind of a comfort movie for me in a weird way. And that is a strange thing to say because it is really fucking dark in places. But there's just something about the cinematography, Willem Dafoe, the music. I know you hate the music, but I, I'm actually going to do something I've never done before here, Dan. I'm going to drop <laughs> a little bit of the music into the edit. 
So there we go, full of energy and and um, excitement. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure it sounds better out of context. <laughs> but even in context, I love that opening montage, like the, the credits where it's kind of, it's like poetry where everything is kind of symbolic rather than, Anyway, I'm not going to go on about this because you you hate it, and uh, I think Thing we is, should move like on. That, but that that first uh, like you just said, and it is really fucking dark in places. And like that first uh, gunshot to the face that we talked you mentioned earlier, mm. like in the opening in the opening moments ish opening moments is like I was like fuck yeah okay I, t- I you know whether or not I've seen this whether or not I remember it whatever maybe I was in a bad mood I'm totally here for this this is the kind of thing I want from a movie mm. this is great and then the nut shot aside it didn't deliver on the darkness for me it it never felt like you know yeah they're unlikable characters and that's fine and I don't have a problem with that but they weren't unlikable enough they weren't bad enough if that's what you're going to do like I want bitter darkness rip my soul out i mean if that's what you're aiming for and it just didn't it didn't do anything it was i i can't get into it but they you know the moments before the car chase and the fallout from that is fucking dark um i guess just you, dumb people making bad decisions the reaction is dark though this film is a treatise on self-made uh self-fulfilling prophecy yes uh on on self-realized destiny like sublimated destiny and the bits where it's dealing with that and the bits where freakin represents that visually and that with those cyclical images are far and away the best bits of the movie there are some some great moments within it i don't think there's anything objectionable to what freakin's trying to say with this movie i think it's a very interesting treatise on that and as you said he's always been very interested in the idea of fate and destiny and i like it when a director returns to the same subject matter in that way Mm. without retreading their own steps because you get to see these like them wrestling with these philosophical questions and coming at it from different angles this film was not a success for me as a piece of entertainment i think freakin's a very interesting person i think that the commentary alone is worth the price of admission he is a fantastic public speaker as well as a as well as a very good director so you know as much as i detested what he did to french connection i was enthralled by his stories in front of it because he's a great storyteller yeah and is. that comes across in 80 percent of his movies <laughs> um oh, fair enough I, i'm really intrigued though so can you sum up for me in in kind of a, a soundbite way what it is that you didn't like about that kind of journey then if you do appreciate the the exploration of of um self-fulfilling prophecies and and people being trapped by their own kind of personalities if you're able to talk about the whole thing what is it that you really had a problem with this kind of thematically it's, rather it, than I, I i think it has to come down to a stylistic choice from him because i think that he could remake this into a film that i loved right um you know we've talked about so many of these like gritty films and maybe it's just the relocation from the 70s to the 80s maybe maybe it's that you know what you talk about a noir with the lights on maybe i like my noirs with the lights off Mm -hmm. i mean i definitely do but (laughs) but but like yeah it it just felt meandering at times uh like uh, so much of it felt like it could have done with some brevity there's a lot of talk from him again i'm sorry that i keep going back to the commentary because like he did put so he shone such a light on 
on both things I had a problem with and things he was saying that I wouldn't have had a problem with if they were actually what he was describing and that's not how it was like he talks about that thing I, you and I used to joke about it when you lived here um, where uh, like two people will be having a conversation and then it'll cut to a completely different place and they're having like the same conversation and no words of like did they just drive in silence for 20 minutes when they got to the second place and he talks about that as like you know you just you just split the dialogue across multiple locations keep the you know brevity and all that and all that but it and yet it felt really drawn out it felt really slack and it's I mean you know it's over two hours only a bit I just felt like it needed tightening up and then also the big events needed to be bigger i needed more bombast i needed more like intensity from car chases and gunfights and all that stuff it just it was never quite at the level that i felt that this film needed it to be i didn't enjoy it you do a lot of people will i'm not saying you shouldn't watch it i don't think it's a quantifiably terrible film it's just not for me hell yeah uh, i think freakin's a very interesting person and he's worth listening to as i said the audio commentary is great and there are some great interviews on the discs as well i enjoyed the one with the stunt guy talking about all yeah. the setups and actually i uh, i re-watched a bunch of the stunt scenes after that interview because i wanted to go back and there are some great thank you blu-ray moments in it mm -hmm. including a uh, a little detail from the car chase scene that he mentions how they did it when you re-watch it if you frame by frame it you can see the the wire that he mentions in his description which i i did not notice i didn't notice it the first time I watched it, I didn't notice it when I watched it again recently. I didn't notice it when I watched it with the audio commentary. So that just shows that it was very technically well done. Mm. And I think that that's one of the things that really stands out for Freakin is that he is an incredibly adept technical filmmaker. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Absolutely fair enough. And and yeah, I hope that there's nothing in this discussion that uh, has, has led any arrowhead to, to think that I don't enjoy hearing. I don't even know how to say this. Dissenting views. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like... I think it's fascinating, and um, I was I was weirdly braced for this one. I don't know why. Because well, I'd be very interested to hear what you think of my recommendations. Oh, I can't wait! I really can't wait. All right, let, let's get on to recommendations. I think Dan, you should go first because I'm only going to do one recommendation this fortnight from a certain what? point of view. Fair enough. So you you can sandwich my uh, my recommendation with yours. What's your first one? Number one is another William Friedkin movie because I feel I have something to prove about liking William Friedkin movies. <laughs> And it's a dark William Friedkin movie from the later end of his career. And if you want a dark William Friedkin movie, you cannot do better than Killer Joe from 2011. Oh, yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, what a it's film. It's like, oh, my God. It'll make you feel like your, your seat is greasy. It's just so fucking dark and gross. Uh, I don't really want to spoil anything about the, the plot, but, yeah, it's an amazing cast. It's uh, an amazing, like, narrative construction, and it's... One of the most, definitely the most uncomfortable film I saw that year, I mm. think. However you feel about him as a as a director and as a person, and uh, I'm not saying that you don't like him because you just re you recommended Killer Joe, but to anyone listening to this who, who isn't necessarily a fan, um, you cannot fault his casting. Mm. His taste for actors is insane. Yeah, absolutely amazing. Yeah. All right, well, um, for my only recommendation uh, this fortnight, I am going to ask you to watch the movies of 1987. Um, that is actually quite a lot of recommendations. All of them. Yeah, all of them. But no, no just a, a select few. Because if you want to kind of see how an important movie has influenced cinema, 
it's normally best to look at the films two years after it's released as that's generally the gestation period of a cash-in unless it's you know a b-movie cash-in in which case it could be churned out months after a, a movie like this comes along but for example reservoir dogs came out in 92 and Killing Zoe came out in 94, along with Natural Born Killers, Shallow Grave and Pulp Fiction. And for To Live and Die in L.A., that came out in 1985. So that's why I'm saying 1987 movies like Lethal Weapon, for sure. Stakeout, Beverly Hills Cop 2, absolutely. That could be a twin of this film in, in, in many ways. <laughs> yeah. um, and even stuff, this might seem a bit weird, but even stuff from 87 like Robocop and Predator in minor ways um the kind well, of the co- shane black obviously has a lot to thank this film for oh a hundred percent i really think that like he saw it and loved it because like there's sort of little bits and pieces throughout almost all of his work really but yeah yeah in those two films that combination of kind of heat and violence and the kind of specific kind of masculinity they depict i won't go into it much more than that but That is my recommendation based on To Live and Die in L.A., the movies of 1987. Dan, what is next from you? Well, it's interesting that you mentioned Reservoir Dogs in that because uh, obviously Reservoir Dogs was written in 1987. Yes. By Ringo Lamb. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Uh, I mean, I guess Ringo Lamb probably wrote City on Fire before 1987. It was released in 87 and it allows me to do that dig. Yes. So you say this is like a noir with the lights turned on. Mm -hmm. Well, if you want to see this film with the lights turned off, I would like to direct you to 1947's T-Men, directed by Anthony Mann. Oh, lovely. Yeah. It's a wonderful movie. It's about two T-Men, which are treasury agents, which is a now defunct arm of the American Secret Service, going undercover in a counterfeiting ring to try to like bust it wide open. And while they maybe don't bend the walls of morality quite as much as To Live and Die in LA's characters do, uh, and while To Live and Die in LA is based on the semi-fictionalized memoirs of a government agent, it is impossible to not see the parallels between the two movies. Mm. It's a procedural, and it has lots of lovely voiceover in it for people that like that, including an interview with an actual member of the Treasury who sort of frames the whole thing in its reality at the beginning as well. Love it. Great recommendation. And uh, let's go straight into films from the past couple of weeks that we've been watching because... I actually have kind of an insane amount to cover here because it is festival season for me with Fantasia and Fright Fest screeners coming in like crazy. So I've actually watched more than 23 movies in the past couple of weeks. So since we last spoke, my first pick is actually playing at both Fright Fest and Fantasia. That film is Kayla Janice's awe-inspiring folk horror documentary Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched which is easily the definitive work on the genre that really dives deep into the cultural aspects of folk horror movies from around the world so uh, a lot of these kind of films look just at the UK really with a little bit of America sprinkled in but this is really global and I can guarantee you'll come out of it with a whole list of movies to watch because it's as comprehensive as House of Psychotic Women Kayla's uh, astonishing book um, and it features contributions from Alexandra Helen Nicholas, Kat Allinger and, and loads of our favourites. So, yeah, that's playing on demand at Fantasia and it will play on Sunday 29th of August at 10 a.m. Um, at Arrow Video Fright Fest. Um, but wherever you see it, make sure you see it. There's some really deep cuts in there. Stuff like Pender's Fen, which oh, I was so happy to see discussed. Yeah, me too. 
Um, so yeah, I made sure to get Dan a link to this one because I assumed he'd love it. However, it is three hours and 20 minutes long and Dan is working on about 15 different projects at the moment. Uh, Dan, did you get a chance to see it and what did you think? I'm devastated to say that I haven't. I'm really, really hoping I get to soon. It is brutal to me that, yeah, I like, yeah. I haven't seen it. Oh, I'm very sad. I'm, I'm, I can't wait. Yeah. Kayla's amazing. She's a human encyclopedia. It's a subject matter very close to my heart. I cannot wait. Like, it's just, I uh, can't wait to hear what you think. You'll just be in heaven for three hours, basically, Dan. And I think there's some films in there that even you won't have seen. So, um, yeah, I look forward to your reaction to that when you do watch it. What have you been watching, though? You'll love it because it's trash. Hey! <laughs> I, uh, I, had a, I had a yearning. And it's not very long, so, you know, I felt I could sneak it in in the week. But I revisited from 1987 by the auteur Gary Goddard, Canon Films Masters of the Universe. Amazing. Dan, I will love this. I saw this at the cinema. Um... I, I first saw this on VHS in the Isle of Wight on a school trip. And I think it might be the first night I kissed a girl. <laughs> wow um wow but but it's also absolutely chock-a-block with rubber monsters so two love of my life's only one of which i remember the name of <laughs> <laughs> finally this podcast is fucking getting going after a hundred episodes or whatever we're finally getting to some fucking cinema um dan tell me everything i don't care oh. about the runtime this week yeah just we... i'm gonna settle back and listen tell me everything so we, uh, I, I found out that Kevin Smith was uh, on board with the new animated one. Jen and I watched the first episode. I was relatively impressed. I did a little bit of reading about the backstory of like the the franchise, particularly because like you know it's it's one of those cynical ones that was essentially designed to sell toys. I didn't know that there'd been a couple of other like iterations of the animated series over the years. Obviously, they passed me by being in the wrong age bracket. But while talking about this to Jen, I realized she'd never seen the Canon films Master of the Universe. And now Canon is my jam. Like, I love that shit. Of course. Um, it's slightly less Jen's jam. <laughs> Side recommendation for Electric Boogaloo, the documentary about oh, Canon yes. films. Yeah, I feel like we've mentioned that before. It's great. That's a that's a, a ringing and ongoing recommendation. I realised Jen hadn't seen it. We decided we had to watch it. We sat up in bed last weekend and just like with the dogs on our lap and just watched it. And it was, it's a delight. And all the way through, I was like, why aren't there films like this anymore? Like, yeah. what is missing from the way modern films are made that is so present here and the thing is that the effects technology has has gone too far and it's so gone too far we need gone to stop too far. it we need to stop it stop all this stop all your cgi and your animatronics yes. stop all your spectral motions and your studio adis it's like i want slightly wonky rubber little people whose mouths don't move properly when they talk when they when they utter streams of expository bunkum science yes i want weird like swelling throaty frog lizard people who are in it for like one scene and then get like absolutely bamfed out of it by skeletor i want a massively asymmetrical skeletor coming back for a post-credit sequence promising me a sequel that i am still owed Oh, yeah. I mean, they'll get to it eventually, Dan. Don't worry about that. Like, there's there's just no way they won't finish this story because it, it's one of 
I actually think that maybe this is why everything's on fire and and the politics is in such because <laughs> they haven't finished the the, the live action Master of the Universe story. Yeah, it, I mean, it needs to be a trilogy at the very least, or or humanity's doomed. Um, maybe they're just waiting yeah. for puppet tech to give them a realistic battle cat, and by realistic, I mean like seventy percent realistic. You know, let's 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 glue some stuff to Pig and and send him out there because. Um, yeah, I think he could do the trick. I mean, I know obviously your dog isn't a cat, uh, but I, I think he's got the. I hate, I hate to break it to you, Skeletor in that film is not played by a living skeleton man. I mean, that is one of the only problems, and I, I'm actually probably going to have to ask permission before I include this fact. But um, my partner Shay, a love of my life, she has, or or at least grew up with, a massive crush on the cartoon Skeletor. Um, I think a lot of people did. It, that's interesting. Why do you, th- do you think it's because he's a bit of a bad boy? I think he's a bad boy. He's muscular. He's an interesting colour scheme. I mean, uh, everyone on Masters of the Universe was muscular, give or take one or two characters. Yeah, but He-Man had that really hairy midriff. Like, even the robot. Maybe James Cameron also saw Masters of the Universe before he made uh, the Terminator movies because uh, they also feature muscular robots. Anyway, we've gone off track. I got overexcited because uh, <laughs> you've you've recommended a film that is one of the greatest ever made. So thank you, Dan. Are you gonna are you gonna watch it again tonight for your birthday? I don't think we'll watch it again tonight. I'm not quite sure what we're gonna watch. We are gonna watch a movie tonight. It'll be a birthday film. But like this is the thing. Whenever Jen's like, ah, you pick. It's your birthday. My brain is like, okay, do I a try and choose a film that's like on my side of things, but might win her over, like sway her into future like watching my films with me mm-hmm. like something that's kind of a middle ground or do i just go right these occasions only come around every now and then mm. just go fucking balls to the wall we're gonna watch the weirdest shit i've got available and she's she's oh she's made her own bed now yes like a a, a five hour long uh stop motion courtroom drama um for example does that I exist mean, I- I I want it to exist. Oh, I'd I'd love that to exist. With the news, I mean, it's not a courtroom drama, but with the news of Mad God finally getting a release, I'm very, very excited for a resurgence in weird stop motion. Yeah, 100%. That's also playing at Fantasia, actually, Mad God, as is a new cut of Junkhead. So, um, yeah, so I think think you're onto something there. I think we are absolutely in for a resurgence of uh, stop motion. I want to include stop motion in in my next film. So um, I'm all in on on stop motion. But anyway, we have uh, we've gone way off track. I'm going to I'm going to get back on track with the film that actually just played at Fantasia. That movie is Bull. And I can guarantee this will be a future cult classic, kind of one of those movies people pass between each other. It's a British movie and it's, it's basically Dead Man's Shoes, crossed with a couple of films I can't name because of spoilers. I really massively think that Neil Maskell is so hugely underrated. Oh, he's so good. Um, he's just one of our very best. And he stars as the titular bull, who's basically on a, a vicious rampage of revenge against a brutal gang who broke up his family. Not going to say any more than that, but it mixes British gangster movies with a couple of other genres. It feels like an art house film in places, a Japanese revenge movie in others, as well as something else entirely. So yeah, you've really got to see this one before someone ruins it for you. Don't read any of the reviews. And, you know, I say it's influenced by Dead Man's Shoes, but it, it very much has its own kind of ideas and style, including a couple of absolutely brilliant shots 
One reminded me of Kubrick, another one reminded me of Argento. Yeah, I really loved it. What a ride. It's coming soon to the UK. Still waiting on a final release date for this one, but there is a trailer and a poster out there. And yeah, just a massive recommend from me. Art House meets Grindhouse. Bull, I recommend it. Beautiful. Um, yeah, Neil's incredible. He really Neil's is. Great. Don't uh, I did like, some... Why don't more people talk about him? He should be like Tom Hardy levels of, of presence in the discourse because he can fucking act. Not only can he act, he can fucking direct. Yes, yeah, yeah. He's great. I did some I did some work for him on uh, Clockenluder, his second feature last year, and mwah, oh my god, that's going to be a treat. Oh, I can't wait. I cannot. Yeah, wait. he's 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 fantastic. I'm trying to remember when I first met him. I think it was the short film I did with Ben Wheatley, the zombie short. Yes. Um, right at the beginning that, that you're in, Sam. Yes, yes. Um, in case you forget. <laughs> <laughs> But it was on uh, Utopia. I got to go out to dinner with him and, and a bunch of the other actors. Like, you know, I'm, I'm a non-actor, but the cast were going out for dinner and they invited me along. Neil invited me along. And I, I got to sort of sit down and chat with them all over dinner about, like, how they approached acting and, like, how they got into it. Like, this is the conversation they were having. I wasn't forcing this. And it was fascinating. But he's so fucking good. Mm. Yeah, he really yeah. is. What an actor. And I'm really glad he's gotten into directing as well because... Yeah, he, he obviously he had a small role in Nil by Mouth, um, which we've talked about on the podcast before, which obviously yeah. is Gary Oldman's directorial debut, still the only film he's he's ever made. And it, what a piece of work that is. And um, yeah, for me, Neil Maskell is, is kind of our Gary Oldman, like the modern equivalent. And um, yeah, I, I just I really hope that, that more people start talking about him because uh, he deserves it. And yeah, Bull is... A, a really great showcase for for a lot of his um, a lot of his skills. Anyway, Dan, what's next from you? Well, so just before I get into my next recommendation, I just want to nip a little bit back to uh, to live and die in LA. Uh-oh. So I was just looking at my notes about my recommendations, uh-huh. and I realised I didn't mention that the thing about to live and die in LA as a Blu-ray is that it joins the illustrious society of terminator and terminator 2 which is films that now having been high definition remastered you get to see the leeds ball bag yes yeah you see i told you james cameron had seen this film and had been influenced by it that is Um, definitely an influence (laughs) right good so that that's Um, your recommendation is it to to look at uh, the ball bag no my recommendation is arthur penn's night moves from 1972 oh nice one which was almost a recommendation for based on. But uh, yeah, Jen and I watched this a couple of nights ago, revisiting to, to see how the fit was. I didn't think it was maybe as connected to To, to Live and Die in LA uh, as I'd hoped. I, the angle I was going to take was that like To Live and Die in LA is like a bit down Freakin's line and then like Night Moves is a bit down Hackman's line. But like it's a it's an amazing film, but it's not that connected. But Night Moves is Gene Hackman as a a, a pretty unlikable character, but a, a very interesting and compelling one. He's uh, an ex athlete who has now uh, fallen into being a private eye, much to the chagrin of his wife, and he is balancing marital problems with a track down job for a, an oversexed aging femme fatale from the uh, the valley or whatever so he's going out to find this young woman who's run away uh, and it tr- it it moves in and out of the world of film which obviously is always a sell for me but the last like five ten minutes of this film 
oh my goodness it's 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 a great thriller all the way through it's really compelling the the sort of the pseudo love interest in it is absolutely fantastic her performance is absolutely great as a sort of victim of circumstance woman who's still very much sort of living by her own rules but but yeah the last last 10 minutes of this film are just incredible awesome awesome i love it yeah great recommendation yeah i i I almost did my own also ran but i deliberately only did one in recommendations because i've got so many films to talk about in extra features so i'm not going to go into that but um yeah that is a great film um it just reminded me of of the other one that i was gonna talk about just fucking say it sam oh no 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 i'm gonna i'm gonna be very good and uh say the name just say that you don't have to describe it or say why you like it just say what it is because i want to know tightrope um the, nice the, okay on, on we go the clint eastwood picture right okay extra features extra features extra features extra features extra features is going to be jam-packed this fortnight so before i go on a massive ramble dan do you have anything for extra features i've got one thing that i was going to recommend perfect it's not a, it's not a film oh. so i figured i'd stick it into extra features it's a it's a tv series it's not it's still still video media uh it's on netflix i was recommended it it's called pili fantasy war of dragons if you know what that is you're welcome if you don't know what that is you're welcome <laughs> it's taiwanese marionette waxia fantastic uh yeah i don't know uh, those of you out there who watched legend of the sacred stone back in the early 2000s which i you know was doing the rounds on vhs at the old boot fairs and the like it's basically that but with a bit of uh sort of like storm riders quality vfx for the magic and the like and sadly a lot of the dragons are digital but it's um it's rigid marionettes so it's not like team america where they're all foam latex um they're all jointed they've digitally removed the strings which i'm unsure about but to be honest the the real selling point has to be the comic relief characters so it does that waxier thing of really like info dumping on you like constantly like going here's more backstory that we're just going to tell you about oh these people have a feud oh these people had an affair that person was that person's dad so there's a lot of that so it's quite hard going but it's really fascinating to watch like you know just purely because of the marionette stuff it's it's worth a look at least but the the comic relief characters are amazing they look like a caucasian version of blade and a very very coked up kenny everett wow uh, yeah and they are these sort of like because they're rigid marionettes there's a little bit of mouth movement the lower lip is mechanized and the eyes move but for the most part to show that these guys are constantly panicking they're just shaking the marionettes about and i find that endlessly delightful wonderful wonderful that's a a fantastic it's really bloody it's very very gory as well i'm even more excited now you'd already completely sold me but add in you know blood splashed on puppets and i'm definitely in wonderful not just blood splashed on puppets blood jetting out of puppets like <laughs> in the opening so there's like a six minute opening credit sequence <laughs> which you can skip if you want but you shouldn't uh, and then we go the you know, media res into a lovely big fight uh, and they're doing it in a bamboo field but because it's miniature it's like grass mm. and there's uh, there's that cool like trope of the bamboos being cut diagonally and all that kind of stuff and then one of the puppets has its head grabbed and pushed down onto a cut bamboo stem and it just bursts out the back of its head and blood jets in the air you get this amazing slow motion shot of one of the puppets with its hair like blowing in the wind with blood splashing all over its face 
and that is a, a beautiful image and actually quite a nice lead in to my kind of first recommendation from Fright Fest and Fantasia. The, the next kind of few that I'm going to talk about are playing at both festivals. But the sadness is easily in my top 10 of the year. I absolutely love this movie. Definitely not for everyone, though. It kind of feels like the first ever live action Richard Lehman film. There is lots of blood splashing around in this one. It's essentially the big screen version of a book that I've mentioned on the podcast, One Rainy Night. It is constantly entertaining if you've got a mind as sick as mine it's basically about a virus that turns an entire country into sadistic maniacs who take great pleasure from taunting and torturing their victims it's playing at fantasia on the 21st of august and at fright fest as the closing film it is great but all the trigger warnings are in place for this one I cannot wait to see the reaction out of Fright Fest because um, it may be one of the most... In fact, it's definitely one of the most offensive movies they've ever played. It's not the most offensive movie, but it's definitely one of them. So if you like that, that wild shit, then big recommendation for that. Also, Beyond the Infinite Two Minutes, which is a completely different tone. That's a, a massive tonal shift. Again, playing at Fantasia and Fright Fest. It is an utterly charming time travel movie that's basically like a single take tenet. It feels like a feature length adaptation of a short story from the golden age of science fiction. I really loved it. It's very funny, very intelligent and ultimately very sweet. That is playing on demand at Fantasia and at Fright Fest on Friday the 27th of August at 6.30pm. And then a very quick recommend for Broadcast Signal Intrusion, literally uh, because of Dan's work on it. That is kind of the main thing that I I, I took away from from this movie. He was the, the special effects supervisor on the creepy videos in the film. And they absolutely elevate the movie, turning it into a bit of a must-see. It's at Fantasia and Fright Fest. I watched it for Fright Fest coverage, and it's playing there on Friday the 27th of August uh, at 8.55pm. So, yeah, just go along and be freaked out by Dan's work on that film. I'll uh, I'll let you know that I actually directed those sequences as well. Oh, so why are you credited as um, the supervisor? Because we had this whole conversation during production about... Because uh, we I, they were shot in England. Like, I, I directed them over here. The director was... Like, the director of the feature was never in the UK. And one of the ways we made the budget work was that I was directing that stuff and that was yeah, a, a that, big I deal mean, for me that, that's what I thought at the time but yeah yep. I, I didn't want to say uh, <laughs> but it's an American Union picture and I'm not part oh, of the DGA of course so they're not allowed to say I'm a director on the credits of the film which <sighs> pisses me off no end but yeah so because it's I a am... completely different style to everything else in the movie and it's yep. so it, it was so vividly you every kind of detail and, and James Swanton yeah you exactly know. lovely lovely james so what i would say is that there is a short film that is just that and then those sequences have been taken from my short film right got it got it so in the future that is happening so will that um will that end up on a blu-ray somewhere it'll probably end up on a blu-ray it may even end up with its own festival screenings oh fantastic Dan. But, but contractually not ahead of the uh <laughs> broadcast English intrusion screenings obviously well there you go even more of a reason to see that movie uh dan's directorial 
big screen debut is it or yeah i think so yeah fantastic yeah like i say those sequences absolutely elevate the movie yeah that's just so creepy and cool so great i'm gonna run through some very quick recommendations for stuff just playing at fantasia um very very quick strawberry mansion Michael Gondry meets the Mighty Boosh. It's an imaginative gem and it's got a firm placement in my top 10 of the year. Strawberry Mansion, amazing. Agnes, another Mickey Reese melodrama with art house and horror influences. Agnes starts out as the exorcist, then becomes a working class character study. I really love this one. And finally, Satoshi Kon, the illusionist. A fantastic documentary about the self-proclaimed genius behind Perfect Blue, Millennium Actress, Tokyo Godfathers, Paprika and more masterpieces. Excellent (laughs) examination of a career and creativity in general. Right, that is finally it. I've hit you with quite a lot of films there, Precious Arrowheads. Dan, have you got any other stuff that you'd like to recommend? Uh, Or is that it for you? No, I think that's it. Go see Sansa uh at the cinema please um that's it perfect perfect because as dan has just said sensor is out in the uk on the 20th of august at the end of the, the week this goes up it is a truly incredible film so i sat down uh, with the director Prano Bailey Bond and her lead neve alger to talk vhs horror and what it's like to work with dan martin yeah, the film is amazing and um, the ending is incredible. Uh, endings are so important. Um, how do you write your endings? On Censor, um, the ending that we actually see in the film wasn't there in the first draft. It, oh, it wow. ended very differently. So it went through a few different versions of the ending and then it was probably in the later drafts that I it clicked and that... Um, that ending kind of happened. I remember one weekend having a deadline to deliver the, the script and I just sat in my, I, I co-write, so I co-wrote the, the film with Anthony Fletcher, but we work, you know, we work separately. We don't sit in the same room or anything. And so I, you know, it was me trying to sort of like conquer the ending of the film. And I think I sat and I, um, I just listened to Blank Mass's first album which is called Blank Mass, on repeat for like three days and just typed and it all kind of came out and I was just really, you know, it, it kind of clicked together. I love it. And um, and how did you feel when you first read the script, Neve? I was just blown away. But like, as you said about the ending, I did not, when I kind of was, you know, five minutes into the first kind of couple of pages, I was like, okay, I think I know, I think I know where this, this is going and then got to the end and I was like, bloody heck, I did not see that coming. Um, and so I, I just loved how Priyana had created this character that I'd never seen done before. And I thought that was incredibly exciting. And any actor would have jumped to the opportunity to, to A, do this film, but also to work with Priyana because she's stupidly talented. And um, the, her her passion for film is so contagious that just the overall experience of just making this film has just kind of reaffirmed why I love filmmaking so much and, and uh, telling story. Yeah. Uh-uh. And and that love of film just, just comes across so much. It's so rich um, in terms of kind of the, the influences potentially and, and, and the, the references and stuff. I, I've got to ask, um, there's one shot 
that really kind of put me in mind of the cover of Slaughterhouse, the, the VHS cover for Slaughterhouse. I'm going to show it to you now. Um, is that recognisable to you? And um, was that an influence at all <laughs> uh, on uh, your TP? Um, I can see exactly from you showing me that, I can see exactly where you mean in the film. Um, and no, it wasn't. What I've loved about talking to people about the film is, you know, from my side, there were really specific influences throughout. But um, actually, uh, people are seeing things in the film that weren't influences as well. And I actually really love that because, you know, I wanted to kind of make this a sort of love letter to the era. And there's so many Im amazing images from these kind of 80s horror films. And I'm hugely influenced by that, those movies and have been in my other work as well. Um, so it's nice that people are kind of having their own experiences and seeing things in the film that even weren't necessarily intentional. Um, but yeah, there were there were some specific influences. And um, in terms of like how you arrived at the idea, um, I've heard you talk about um, an article that you read in a magazine about censors and how that kind of inspired you. Um, but were the themes of kind of psychological repression already kind of in there and, and you found that as a conduit to talk about it or did it all come together at the same time if that makes sense it actually started out as a bit of a silly idea in my head which is often what happens with my films and then as I think about them more and more they get deeper and deeper and darker and and so for me at first it wasn't so much about the kind of personal idea of self-censorship and censorship of traumatic memories that was something that really evolved over time. I remember when me and Anthony Fletcher were kind of writing early drafts and we were like, there's something in her childhood that she can't access, some memory she can't, she can't quite get to it. And I knew that at that point I wanted to explore, you know, self-censored memories. Um, and, uh, and then we explored different things that could have been that memory. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a real evolution, I think. And um, in terms of uh, the kind of mystery that's at the heart of the film, um, there's, um, without going into spoilers or anything like that, um, you, you leave stuff for the audience to kind of make up their own mind about. Um, I'm just wondering if, Neve, if you both agree on the truth of the matter, or if, Neve, you have your own backstory for your character, because... Um, it is ambiguous in, in a really amazing and fascinating way. Yeah, it was it was interesting because I remember like when I first went to read the for, for the character and meet Prano, but I given it away. I was like, you know, does she remember? And Prano was really like, well, that's your that's up to you to decide. And we never kind of locked into like Prano never told me you must do it this way so that we're there for the audience has to, I suppose, read into it in a, in a certain way. And I think that's the whole point is that what is so great about Prano is that she listens to everyone and talks to everyone, both cast and crew on, on, a, on a level where you are being heard and you are as equally um, inclusive in the creative process as, as she is. So the taking, I suppose, ownership of your character was like very much, Prano's idea of me just kind of creating that backstory because I had to I had to ground it in 
the truth of what I've, I feel like the character had gone through. Otherwise, you're kind of not fully uh, committing, I suppose, to those that that psychological trauma. So, um, yeah, we did. We had many. Myself and Pano had many conversation of what we we felt had actually happened to to Enid. Oh, I love it. I absolutely love it. And um, yeah, the, the movie made me think of um, films like Taxi Driver and, and Black Swan, where there's kind of um, a, a surreal quality that puts you in the POV and the mind of, of the lead. Um, Prano, how did you work with your cinematographer um, in order to kind of create that connection between the inner and the outer world? Because it mm. is a whole unique world, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, everybody in the team, not just me and Neve, were obsessed with Enid. And even when I was kind of crewing up, I remember my production designer, Paulina Zizoska, um, when she kind of, we spoke about the film for the first time, she was just so into character and how can we communicate character through the set and all these little ideas. And Annika and I have worked, Annika's my DOP, and we've worked together on lots of films, um, you know, short films and music videos and know each other really, really well. So we've been talking about Enid for, for years already because she we actually lived together while I was writing the film. So she had to put up with me talking about her all the time. So we were all like obsessed with Enid and, and it is very much like a single point of view experience. Um, and it's, it is a collaboration between all the departments, but from the uh, camera's perspective, I mean, we're close to Enid. We, we talked a lot about how the camera moved um, and in relation to Enid and her, psych, like how she felt psychologically in that period of the film. So for example, we are very still at the front and Enid's very coiled and she's very closed. And then as Enid starts to unravel, the camera starts to move, but we started to move the camera when we go into the dreams. Um, and actually then once you come out of the dreams, the camera starts to move in the sensors office. But we we created almost like a little manifesto for ourselves, which were things like the camera moves when Enid moves, you know, and, um, but then, you know, it, it is about how then, you know, the, the camera works with Neve, like where's the camera in relation to the character, but then also like how the, how the edit works and the sound works and every single department's thinking about how do we keep the audience inside Enid's head. Um, so I think, yeah, every department's Enid-centric <laughs> in this film. I love it, I love it. And um, you, to focus on one kind of specific department, um, my, my co-host on the podcast is Dan Martin, um, who did your special effects. Um, can you talk a little bit about working with Dan? Because obviously he's quite a, a big personality. <laughs> Oh, he's amazing. I've worked with Dan on a few shorts as well. We've had some really fun conversations that have, like, I remember working on a short film with him where we had a long conversation about how men piss. Um, <laughs> like, because obviously I'm a woman. I don't know where, exactly where men put their trousers when they go for a wee in a forest. And um, that was quite fun. Uh, so, <laughs> um so working with Dan is always really fun because I'll like write something horrible that happens to someone in a script. And then I'm like, okay, how do we actually do this? And Dan's my go-to man. And, um, and then he's like, right, Prano, okay, what we can do is <laughs> we'll kill them like this. And, you know, so he was, he's always just such a delight to work with and so like inventive and, um, you know, 
uh, great to have around and great to have on set. So yeah, he was brilliant. And him and Michael Smiley on set at the same time was a joy. Fantastic. That's awesome. And um, yeah, Neve, uh, did you spend any time uh, with any real censors um, as part of your research? Because uh, it's a kind of, I guess it's there in the writing as well, but the cliche approach would be to, you know, uh, not humanise them, make them, you know, kind of harsh. Um, but this is such a balanced betrayal. Um, is there any kind of real life people that, that helped you um, create the character? Yeah, well, luckily Prano had, had been conversing with an actual real life censor that then she put in place and got me to speak with Carol. Cool. Um, but it was more just the legit, like logistically what the job entailed because what we found about Enid is that she's a very kind of uniquely special character who sees herself as this, she is very much doing like a service to the public and it was finding like why it is that she's doing this very specific job and how that kind of informed who she was as a person, why, why she chose this specific profession. But yeah, it was just the logistics of how many hours you would spend in a screening room, how it, it would differ from just watching like a cartoon that they feel like they have to cut certain things out of that would be inappropriate for a child or, you know, then, then the other scale of it. And it's like extreme violence, um, on women and it was just it was just fascinating because Carl is an amazing person but like highly intelligent like super highly intelligent I think there was like this this idea that I don't know I just always imagined that this board of censorships is it just they just reminded me of people like in MI5 that were like nobody knows really what they do and they're just quite mysterious and I always thought there was this this the way in which Prana was kind of depicted the characters in this and, and like you know put together this cast it's just they're all quite misfits and they don't really fit into society in a way that's almost like it's almost like filmmakers in a way we're all kind of like it's like a, a creative hub of like misfits that shouldn't really have been allowed to be given money to make movies but we do because that's what we do and, and we love it and we it's fun but for Enid it's like I just loved how we could create a character that doesn't isn't actually emotionally affected by anything that she's watching there is this like filter that she puts up and slowly that begins to to come down and I was choosing I suppose looking at the script and picking out where that 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 sensor that that filter was going to was going to drop and and pinpointing in that 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 those places oh uh, there's so much in what you've just said that um yeah that I kind of want to respond to but one of the kind of key things is why is she drawn to to that job right and I've seen some kind of misinterpretations of the movie that think oh maybe it's pro-censorship because obviously you know kind of these films do have an impact um but I think it's more an exploration of why we're drawn to horror in the first place right because yeah. so um yeah could you talk a little bit about that side of things from your own perspective because I, I don't think it's pro-censorship. No and I kind of expected people to maybe see that and you know it, it isn't it is an interesting one because ultimately oh spoiler but like yeah Enid's uh, response to what she sees is extreme let's say so um, I can understand people reading into that but I do think that it's more complicated and uh, murky and I think censorship is a complicated murky subject so um, 
yeah but I definitely as a as a horror filmmaker or a horror adjacent filmmaker or whatever you want to call me um I definitely get asked a lot about like why horror and and I I think about that you know you answer the question and then you go away and you're like well why do I like this stuff actually and I I think through this film I, I was able to kind of meditate on that a little bit when I was writing it you know thinking about what is it that horror provides us and one moment that I'll sort of pinpoint that I guess for me is a reflection of that is when Enid first meets the Beast Man um, and he embraces her and um, that although you know it's very kind of subtle but for me that's a lot to do with like what horror can be for people that it is a kind of safe place and a place to kind of um, have like cathartic experiences and for lots of people horror um, is a kind of something they belong to and like a community and a place where misfits can find other misfits and 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 be accepted and I think that there's lots of kind of beauty in horror um, and and I guess you know there's that peppered through the film but not in a really obvious way um, but I do for myself I think it's like it is a cathartic um, experience watching a horror film it's like a, a genre that gives you like a physical ride and and leaves you sort of with you know either being scared to walk up the stairs or it having a thrill after you've seen a really great horror film but also as a filmmaker I think there's something cathartic about making horror films as well. A hundred percent a hundred percent um, and I'm actually working on a, a VHS release for a couple of my films at the moment and um, yeah, choosing the art and, and, and working with, with the distributor on that stuff is just so much fun. Uh, would we potentially see a VHS release for Sensor at any time? Is that something that, that you'd enjoy, do you think? I've always said right from like way before we even like rolled the camera, there has to be a VHS release of this yeah. film. Um, I, I haven't heard any like official you know talk on that I know we've got some really really cool blu-ray releases that haven't been announced yet but they're coming up I hope with all my heart that we'll get to do like a kind of limited VHS release as well so hopefully yeah oh amazing um well I think that's my time but thank you so much for your time and thank you both for the film it was just yeah it's my film of the year so far it's so thrilling oh, so thank oh, you thanks that's Sam. great thanks, thanks, there we go. That was great, wasn't it? Um, what was your experience of, of making Sensor like, Dan? I mean, it was, yeah, it was great. Uh, it was two of my favourite people coming together, Prano Bond and Andy Stark. Um, uh, I'd worked with Prano on a couple of short uh, format things before. Uh, she's a fantastic collaborator and always really, really fun to sort of like play around with ideas with. Um, and then Andy's just, you know, absolutely one of, if not my absolute favourite producer to work with. So um, it was a delight all the way through. And uh, let's throw in a mention for Michael Smiley as well, because he's another collaborator that you love. Yeah, it's always great to work with Michael. Um, I, I, Without wanting to spoil too much, I don't have a huge amount to do with Michael. We, we're on set for a few days together. Um, but he's, yeah, he's always an absolute delight to be on set with. He's a, he's, that man has funny bones. Yeah, yeah, he really does. Um, excellent. Right. Well, uh, before we kind of wrap this up uh, in that interview, I did mention that 
um, working on a VHS release uh, at the moment. That is very excitingly the first and probably only physical release for A Little More Flesh and A Little More Flesh 2. I've worked with an incredible distribution company called Black Widio. It's two Vs in the Vavitch style. Um, so, yeah, it's a very cool logo. Um, but, yeah, we've created a really beautiful pack for collectors. Um, it is limited to just 78 sets, uh, which contain the two tapes, an exclusive 1970s style poster for a little more Flesh's film within the film, God's Lonely Woman, as well as a soundtrack cassette for the sequel, A Little More Flesh 2, and you get it all for just 60 bucks. The pre-order page will be pinned to my Twitter when you hear this, and I would advise ordering sooner rather than later. Um, obviously, Frankenstein's Creature sold out pretty quickly, and I'm expecting this probably to do the same, and it is so limited. So, yeah, we'll have a ticker on the pre-order page, and when these super limited 78 sets are gone, they are gone. So, good luck. I really hope you get one as this is a release that I really crafted with the arrowheads in mind as a bit of a treat really. Lots of people ask me about releases for these movies so I do hope that, that you all do manage to pick one of these packs up. Not all of you obviously as there are more of you listening to this than 78 but I hope the ones that, that really care about it do get in there quickly. Right Dan finally happy birthday how can people find you on social media to wish you an incredibly belated happy birthday by the time this goes up? <laughs> uh, I'm at 13fingerfx uh, on both Twitter and Instagram. I've been a little quiet on both of late because everything I'm doing is embargoed, including my birthday cake. <laughs> um, my staff made me a beautiful, massive cake and then proceeded to decorate it with images from the new Brandon Cronenberg film, which obviously means I now can't share it on Instagram or Twitter. But yeah, things will creep up as uh, as we get further away from the release of uh, In the Earth. I'll start posting stuff from that as more things are revealed in the trailers and distro of sensor uh, and uh, broadcast signal. I'll post some stuff from that. So yeah, you know, that that kind of thing. You know what to expect. Awesome. Awesome. Love it. And I'm on at Sam Ashurst. It's just my name. Uh, yeah. So do come and find me for those VHS tapes. Like I said, the pre-order page will be pinged to the top of my page. And yeah, I'm very excited about the release. All right. I think that's everything. Unless you have any final thoughts, Dan. I want to, because I haven't heard the Prano interview yet, I want to know how she refers to me as a piss wizard. Well, she doesn't quite refer to you as a piss wizard. Those are, are, are my words, not hers. And um, for anyone listening to this who isn't a, a diehard Arrowhead and, and hasn't listened to our Waterworld episode, I suggest you go back and listen to that for a bit of Piss Wizard backstory. Um, but no, she basically told me uh, about your kind of contributions to the art of representing male piss on screen. <laughs> It's constant. I like it, it. For some reason, that always falls into my camp. I'm not sure if other like makeup effects and figurative effects artists uh, are responsible for quite so many what we in the industry refer to as piss rigs. Uh, <laughs> but I constantly, constantly build piss rigs. Yeah, it's all about it, it's all about surface tension. Piss has a lot of salt in it, Sam. It doesn't oh, move like normal water. There you go. Wow. That, don't give away your all your your piss secrets, Dan. Jesus Christ. <laughs> 
um brilliant right on that on that note we're gonna bring this to a close and i'm gonna say thank you so much for listening and we promise to be more professional next time time bye-bye bye